0: Hello, um, and welcome to the sixth episode of the insurance podcast, the Middle East edition. I'm Olivia Darlington, a managing associate in the Simmons & Simmons insurance and construction team based in Dubai. Today, I'm joined by Alex Jomar, an experienced cyber underwriter at Tokyo Marine Kiln. Alex is based in London, but underwrites cyber risks in the Middle East. Um, Hi, Alex. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Olivia. I'm very well. Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. I'm sorry. It's such an early start for you. Um, Thanks um, so much for joining me. So cybersecurity, as we all know, is is obviously a very hot topic at the moment with large-scale cyber incidents, particularly ransomware attacks such as the Colonial Pipeline and JBS attacks, unfortunately becoming a very regular occurrence with wide-ranging consequences. The head of cybersecurity at the UAE government warned that the Middle East was facing a cyber pandemic as hackers have taken and continue to take advantage of digital adoption and increased reliance on, on um, technology. I think it's fair to say that the same can be said of countries worldwide. To add to that, there is a trend in supply chain attacks where criminals seek to damage an organization by targeting less secure elements in the supply chain. We're all acutely aware of the recent ransomware cyber attack on Florida-based software supplier company Kaseya, which has reportedly impacted over 1,500 businesses in multiple countries. This attack is the latest in a string of supply attacks, other high profile ones being the solarwinds attack in early 2020 and the notpetya and wannacry attacks in 2017 while uh, these types of attack aren't a new thing there is a clear trend taking place of third party software and service providers becoming targets for cyber criminals and you can see why given the domino effect that supply chains present all it requires is is one weak link All companies around the world, including in the Middle East, will be reliant on third-party technology companies, sometimes offshore, to deliver their services. Supply chain cyber attacks can obviously target any industry, um, but in the Middle East, we are seeing a particular increase in targeted supply chain attacks in the financial services and oil and gas sectors. So, um, Alex, why do you think the Kaseya breach has stirred things up so much?
1: Uh, Well, as you say, supply chain cyber attacks aren't new, but we have noticed an increasing trend towards technology providers being targeted, uh, as these companies usually have a route into their clients' networks. So ransomware has also been on the rise for a number of years now, and the Kaseya attack essentially combined both. So attacks such as the one on Kaseya highlight the risk of reliance on third parties for technology services because a lot of these businesses weren't able to operate. There was a supermarket in Sweden that wasn't able to operate as a result of a technology company based in Florida, which just goes to show that the geographical limitations that you normally associate with risk, such as earthquake, fire or flood, uh, isn't actually a, a, something that you need. It should, it should be considered completely differently uh, in the cyber sphere. And if this company in the supply chain can be attacked and you can be affected, it's it's something that companies should really open their eyes to. The ransomware threat is obviously something that you need to consider as well. Uh, Ransomware is a type of cyber attack where hackers enter your system, circumvent your security controls, uh, shut shut your operations down effectively and then hold you to ransom payment taking place via cryptocurrency. Uh, and there's a huge reported rise in these cases, which we've seen on our own books, but it's also getting general media attention as well. But what I would have to say, despite the hype around the Casaya attack, and there always is a lot of noise when there is a systemic event, uh, we'd consider this something of a storm in a teacup, certainly from an insurance catastrophe perspective. Very few uh, insureds in our portfolio were affected. We were able to restore a lot of the... Affected uh, systems from backups, which isn't something often available to us during more sophisticated ransomware attacks. Uh, but what it does highlight is, highlight is you have to know who you partner with, what the limitations are in terms of security, and in, uh, in order to protect your own interests.
0: Thanks, Alex. I'm sure that's music to people's ears to hear that it's it's not considered a a huge catastrophe in, on the internet side. Um, We're just thinking about, practically speaking, what organisations can do to protect themselves from this kind of risk. Um, I think, obviously, they they will need to start vetting their technology partners, um, requiring them to have auditable proof that they have implemented an adequate security framework and can demonstrate that they actually comply with it. Um, Companies will also want to track vendors instant history, including asking about their software patching processes and the robustness of their security teams. From a legal perspective, companies can try to mitigate the risk through their legal contracts, of course, um, with those third parties, for example, by requiring the third parties to take out insurance. uh, or to have specific industry best practice cybersecurity procedures in place, or that the third party indemnifies them for losses arising out of cyber attacks on that third party. However, technology companies would generally not accept liability under the contract, which is why insurance does play such an important role in all of this. Um, So, if an organisation was an unfortunate victim of a supply chain cyber attack, um, would a cyber insurance policy typically cover losses arising out of it? Yes, uh,
1: good question, and uh, the answer is yes and no. I think uh, it's it's important to understand, again, the contractual relationship. The, The reality is, as you say, a lot of managed service providers simply will not accept liability under contract, so any losses caused by that MSP uh, you can't then pursue them for, or if they, if, if, if you're an organisation maybe with a bit more influence or clout, you might be able to get them to agree to uh, a multiple of fees or a bit in terms of indemnity, but it's, it's, it's very much up in the air. So the reason I say yes and no is uh, you have to sub- uh, split the supply chain into two arms if you're considering it from a cyber insurance policy. So there's uh, what we determine to be IT technology providers and then non-IT technology providers, And most uh, modern cyber insurance policies provide cover for what we determine as contingent business interruption, uh, which provides cover for business interruption losses uh, realised directly as a result of an outage at a third-party technology service provider. So you made reference earlier in the podcast to uh, JBS, which is a large meat provider. We wouldn't consider that a technology service provider. So you may not have coverage unless uh, you've got a very good broker that can negotiate that for you. But The reality is is that the majority of your IT network uh, will be completely reliant on third-party technology systems. So there's a huge amount of coverage that you can get. Uh, And as with all cyber policies, there's a a breach response service that accompanies it. uh, I don't wish to disparage uh, the legal profession, Olivia, but the last person you really want to be speaking to in the height of a technology emergency is a lawyer, uh, unless you (laughs) wish to hire them to gain confidentiality, which we would highly recommend. No offense Uh, taken. (laughs) <laughs> the, uh, the the reality is is that Casaya was actually is actually a very small application, but it proved to be critical in some circumstances. So it may not be entirely obvious uh, which technology service provider will necessarily bring your business down. It could be any of them. It could be all of them. But. Uh, Cyber policies define technology providers quite broadly, so essentially all of your technology services would be covered. So you would be able to get not only the support during an incident, but also uh, the the balance sheet loss restored from the loss caused by that technology service provider. Uh, However, with that said, uh, as most of your listeners will be aware, the insurance is currently undergoing a hardening uh, in terms of pricing and capacity. And certainly, cyber has not been immune from that. In fact, fact, I think cyber has been disproportionately affected just due to the rise of ransomware coinciding with the the hardening of the market has just compounded the effect of uh, increased prices and and, and tighter restrictions on behalf of underwriters. So the reality is is that whilst this coverage is still available, you'll probably have to meet a, a relatively high bar in order to get coverage.
0: Okay, so and what, what kind of things, like how has that manifested itself?
1: Sure, so uh, normally we are uh, asked for proposal forms which encompass ask for uh, positions in terms of technology, security technology or processes, what training has been given to staff, uh, but what effectively we've started to focus on now due to the threat of ransomware and certainly due to the, the threat of ransomware being delivered by technology service partners is uh, specific controls which can circumvent a ransomware attack because you can't think of a ransomware attack as just uh, some one or one person exchanging a virus into another system and dumping it in there and then holding them to ransom. It's a lot more nuanced than that a lot of the time. Uh, there's usually some sort of level of reconnaissance that takes place where access is, is, is obtained, uh, people nosing around the network, figuring out what's what, creating elevated access uh, creating users with elevated permissions so that they can, the intruders can circumvent certain security controls, deny access to backups, uh, and then, of course, deliver the, the ransomware payload, which is just simply an encryption cipher which encrypts databases. And what the effect of that is, is essentially you can't operate the systems. And really, you have to think about it from this perspective. Could, could you, do, no matter what industry you're in, could you do your job without a computer? And the answer is probably yes, but a uh, much uh, reduced efficiency. Uh, if at all. So what we are looking for specifically are uh, certain controls which have actually recently been highlighted almost to the letter by uh, the New York Department of Financial Services who have recently released uh, what they determined ransomware guidance which will be binding on all regulated entities, uh, which is actually uh, a little strange for regulation. Normally regulations concerning cybersecurity or data privacy are encouraging best practice rather than specific security controls, but they actually match what underwriters are asking for. So uh, privilege access management, use of privilege access management tools or use of endpoint detection response technology, uh, multi-factor authentication. And the idea behind all of these controls is not just a checklist, it's there are, there are certain aspects uh, in supply chain risk and where vendors can access your network, certainly your technology providers, as we've seen from the Casaya uh, attacks and other technologists, MSP l- level attacks like Sedisad so and the Kiwi ransomware, which we can talk about another time. Uh, but essentially the, the, the level of access that technology service providers have, we want to ensure that there's some sort of security that sits behind that, that that access is limited, that they can't move laterally within your network. Uh, if they were to, if that access was compromised, uh, we also want to make sure that the, uh, the, the there are certain types of redundancies in place. We we are we would be checking for vendor management, what kind of auditing is done, as you've alluded to. Uh, so it's a combination of not just security tools, but also people and process, which also forms the two other pillars of cyber security. Uh, if the processes and policies aren't in place, then people won't follow them. And if the people aren't trained, and if the, if, the, if the the risk to people's access, for instance, if access isn't limited, people can be exploited. So there's various elements of levels of fallibility, and um, essentially, what these new requirements are doing is zeroing in on the more specific current threats, uh, which are borderless, uh, as we've seen.
0: Thanks. That's. Well, that's really interesting. Can I just ask a question before I I close the podcast? Sure. Um, just in relation to ransom payments. And are you are you seeing, um, and you may not be able to answer this, but are you seeing sublimits on ransom payment
1: uh, cover? Yeah. Or, yeah. It's not specifically limited to ransom payments, but uh, what we are seeing is either co-insurance or sub-limits for uh, ransomware attacks, because it's not just the extortion payments that are insured under cyber policies. Uh, there is the actual business interruption and the costs that the company incurs. So, if any of that is related to a ransomware attack, some carriers are sublimiting co- and co-insuring, uh, and whether wh- that that might be a case of that insurer's appetite, or that may be a case of the position and security. If you don't meet certain requirements, you can still buy the insurance. But the, your, cover, your exposure to ransomware, your coverage for ransomware will
0: be certainly a lot more limited. OK, thanks, Alex. That's been such an interesting discussion. Um, hopefully we can have a more there's such a big topic to cover, obviously, in, in a short podcast. But, and hopefully we can discuss it again at another time. But thank you very much for joining me. Um, and hopefully that's been some food for thought for our listeners.
1: Not at all. Thank you for having me.